Well, I'm delighted to be here with you today. Um, it's a kind of a daunting um, subject for 20, 25 minutes, maybe 30, but I'll probably try to do it shorter and then just let you um, um, ask questions because I'm going to more or less be giving you kind of an outline of uh, what I think are the key points. And if something really interests you, you want to hear more about it, uh, we, can, we can talk about that. Just a little bit from the, the, the big picture for a minute. The most recent Pew study indicates that 79% of the world's population lives in uh, countries where there are severe or very severe restrictions on religious freedom. Uh, what we most have been watching lately, of course, is the Middle East. We've got these terrifying images that come to mind whenever we think of the Middle East these days. We think of the, that little boy washed up on the shores of uh, the Turkish beach, which all of a sudden people became aware that 50 to 60 million refugees uh, are all around the world, the highest since uh, World War II. Uh, you've got the picture of the beheadings of the 21, uh, mainly cops on the shore of the Mediterranean uh, not so many months ago. You've got the pictures of the Yazidi girls and others, minorities, including some Christians, being violated sexually, made sex slaves uh, to ISIS troops. You've got what we saw on Palm Sunday just a, a few days ago uh, with respect to the suicide bombings of uh, churches uh, that affected uh, Coptic Christians. And you ask yourself, why in the world is all this going on? There are a lot of reasons, and they go well beyond ISIS. Uh, they, they have to do with brutal authoritarian regimes, has to do with sectarian violence, uh, it has to do with ethnic and nationalist intolerance, and yes, it does have to do with uh, Islamic extremism. But one of the things that's created an atmosphere in which this has been particularly uh, rampant has been, of course, uh, what happened in 2003 uh, when Saddam Hussein uh, was removed from power. And I'm sure the last thing on President Bush's mind uh, when he participated in that was that it could create a situation in which 90% of all the Iraqi Christians would end up being displaced or become refugees or IDPs. Many of them, by the way, in 2003, 2004, 2005, 2006, where did they flee? They fled to Syria, thinking they would be safe in Syria. Just as at the end of the Ottoman Empire, Armenians and Assyrians and Greeks fled from the Ottoman Empire, where did they go? They went to Aleppo. And um, the images we've seen in recent months of, uh, of Aleppo in shambles, you realize that, you know, early in the 20th century, 400,000 Armenians fled into Aleppo. In 2004, 5, 6, lots of people fleeing into Aleppo. There was a time when 40% of the population of Aleppo was Christian. It's now just a few uh, thousand left in that city. But... It's the combination of the sectarian violence that was unleashed by the overthrow of Saddam Hussein, plus the civil war that began in Syria in 2011, which, as you know, has created four to 500,000 casualties, deaths, and over half of the entire population of Syria has been displaced or out of the country or in IDP camps. Uh, these have been perfect conditions uh, for extremists, uh, to gain power, and to, that's had a particularly negative impact on Christians. 
Let me say a few things about Christianity in the Middle East, and I would like to get around to at least make a few observations about helping uh, Christians in the Middle East, with the final point being to talk a little bit about what do you actually do about one of the causes of the problem, uh, violent Islamic extremism. Uh, the first thing I simply want to uh, note here for you, and I'll have to go through this very, very quickly. You know the story already. Uh, you know, the Middle East is the home to our faith. I mean, it was, remember where Saul was headed when he had his uh, encounter uh, with Jesus, who he said, why are, you, why are you persecuting me? And then Saul, who became Paul, but he was going to Damascus to take Christians back from Damascus in chains uh, to Jerusalem. In 600 AD, there were more Christians in the Middle East than in, any, than in all of the Western uh, parts of Europe combined. And even as late as 900 or 1,000, many parts of the Middle East were still uh, majority Christian. But Christianity has never been completely uh, safe in the Middle East. Uh, if you want to get a sense of this, read uh, Will, William Dalrymple's uh, wonderful account uh, sometime back, which he got in the footsteps of a monk 1,400 years before, before the time of the rise of Islam, and it looked like Christianity was on the verge of being stamped out even in uh, that pre-Islamic period. So you just go through the history of the Middle East, and it seems like the Christians have always had a lot of trouble. Even under Islam, under the better circumstances, they were basically uh, second-class uh, uh, citizens. But it's been particularly bad, not just the last 10 or 15 years, but the last century. The way to think about this is consider that there are probably 30 to 35 Middle Eastern million Middle Eastern Christians, over half of whom are outside of the Middle East. They live outside of the Middle East at the present time. Or consider the fact that 100 years ago, if you took the Middle East writ large, you probably had a population that was 13.6% Christian, and by 2010, that had been reduced to 3.7%. I can assure you it's well less than 3.7% now, maybe closer uh, to, to 3%. Now, just to kind of complete our overview of the Middle East in terms of Christianity, I want you to uh, file away in the back of your minds what you hear about Iraq and Syria is not the entire story about Christianity in the Middle East. In fact, if you're trying to locate, like the Religious Freedom Institute, which I works for, some kind of a, a location for our office in the Middle East, it's hard to pick because all the countries are so different. They represent such different phenomena. We've got uh, Father Andre here from Lebanon. Lebanon has the highest percentage of a population that's Christian. Someplace between, I don't know, 35, 38 percent of Lebanese are, are Christian. By the way, a country which is on the verge of being very destabilized by one to two million Sunni refugees. They have the highest percentage of refugees in the world in Lebanon. It already had a delicate balance between the Shia, the Sunni, and the Christian. But to throw in one to two million Sunni, the sooner we get the Syrian war taken care of and those folks back to some kind of safe havens in Syria or someplace, it's better it's going to be, uh, better it's going to be for Lebanon. Or consider Egypt, which has the biggest number of Christians in the Middle East, something like nine, eight, nine, ten percent of the population of Egypt. Uh, so you're talking about eight or nine million Christians, mainly cops, quite a few Catholics, but mainly cops. Or think of Jordan, which has the most favorable government in the Middle East, the Muslim government, towards Christians. Um, you know, there's even been an offer of safe haven there. But it's a very poor country. It could be destabilized. You've got Israel, 
which is a very unusual situation. But if you look at the percentage of Christians in what was historically Palestine, it's gone from about 20% of the population of Palestine to probably less than 1% today. So there's been an exodus of Christians for often economic reasons, not for religious freedom reasons, but they're out. They're leaving. They've been leaving for many, many decades from Israel and the occupied territories. And then you've got Turkey. Here you've had one of the sharpest declines of Christianity anywhere. In 1914, there was probably four and a half million Christians in Turkey or what would have been the Ottoman Empire then. That had dropped to 250,000 by 1923. You had a homogenization of Turkey that's occurred, not so much because of extreme Islam, but probably more to be explained by ethnic Turkic, Turkish uh, forces. But you have three and a half million Armenians, Assyrians, and Greeks that were either killed or displaced at the end of the Ottoman Empire. Unbelievable numbers. And the violence against them during that time is not any better. It's just as bad as anything we've seen in recent days here. Now, if you narrow down a little bit further, I, I'm not saying much about I Iran, where there's like 0.3% of the population is Christian, but it's some of the most brutal persecution of Christians anywhere in the Middle East uh, takes place in Iran. But Christianity is not being wiped out completely in the Middle East. It's in deep trouble in Iraq and Syria. 80% of the Christians in Probably Syria or Ghana are displaced. 90% perhaps in Iraq are Ghana displaced. And we don't have an end in sight to the, uh, the civil war. So what do we do about a situation uh, like this? Um, I'm going to suggest just a few quick things. And, um, and then I'm going to end with some comments about how to deal with um, violent Islamic extremism. The first thing is, for God's sake, we ought to help the uh, refugees and IDPs. Um, I mean, that's what Christians, that's what all people of goodwill ought to do. There's plenty of good organizations out there that do it. Aid to the Church in Need, the Knights of Columbus, Caritas, Veritate, and International, CRS, World Vision. If you give to World Vision or CRS, though, just remember if you wanted to go to the Christian refugees, you're going to need to say so because they help everybody, and which is fine. Uh, but there's been an assumption out there that Christians have more help. It's not always true. Uh, so um, there are organizations capable of doing their work, and they should. So the first thing we should do is help these folks who are in duress right now. Secondly, we ought to help the ones to stay to stay. Um, because a lot of them want to stay, and the leadership wants to stay. And as Mosul gets uh, cleared, and the cities around Mosul get cleared, people are surprising folks are taking all sorts of risks to go back. But 80 to 90 percent of their, their houses, the infrastructure, electricity, the water, it's gone. Um, one study I saw recently from Aid to the Church in Need said that maybe 250 million euros was needed to just do some of the initial rebuilding of that area. Well, that's some place we can help. And if we help in that way, Christians will be allowed to stay in the Middle East. And by the way, the point is not just to help Christians so that they can be helped. The Middle East without minorities, the Middle East without Christians is a more dangerous place for the rest of the world. Any place where there's not pluralism is a more dangerous place for its own citizens and the rest of the world. Christians have been there for, from the beginning. 
we ought to do what we can, whether it's safe havens, whether it's economic help to these uh, folks so that they can get on their feet again. So the second thing I would suggest is we really need to find ways to provide the security and the economic wherewithal so that they can stay. The third thing I would suggest is has to do with foreign assistance, and I'm terribly concerned about some of the threats to slashing the foreign assistance budget in this country. Nothing could be more foolish. Uh, than that. Uh, the investment, the return on investment, for, of course I'm, a, I'm partisan, I was for, worked for USAID for eight years, but we had generals who would come and testify uh, for us that this was a better use of money than having to deal with problems that sometimes foreign assistance can, can, can help with. Uh, you know, uh, uh, Father Andre is here, and one of the, there was, there's legislation before Congress that would bring a lot more assistance to Lebanon that is in our best interest to do that sort of thing. So I'd like to see us do that sort of thing for re reconstruction and security and infrastructure, et cetera. And then let me jump right into the, the issue of how do you counter violent Islamic extremism. And uh, I've got about, I'm going to try to do this in 10 minutes. I don't think that's possible, but I'm going to try it anyway. Um, Look, I already said that it's a whole lot more than just violent Islamic extremism. There were barbaric authoritarian regimes which created a climate in which extremism always flourishes, whether it's extremism from the left or extremism from the right. The roots of the particular virulent form of extremism that we've seen go all the way back uh, to the earliest centuries of uh, Islamic history, 13th, 14th century, 18th century Wahhabism, a 20th century Muslim Brotherhood, all of these are sources for a particular view of Islam. Um, we've got Jack Rusinko here. Where are you, Jack? Jack has written a very interesting piece with um, uh, Imam Majid out near Dulles Airport, which describes um, the phenomenon of ISIS as apocalyptic, ultra-nationalist, and occult. And, it's, and there, it has all sorts of traits like this, well, because you know ISIS considers many and most Muslims to be outside the sphere of what is acceptable. And more Muslims have been killed by ISIS than Christians or other minorities. This is a very dangerous phenomenon for Muslims, not just for Christians and the rest of the world. So you've got these ideological roots for this. It has cult-like characteristics. You've got al-Baghdadi, who in 2014, when Mosul was taken, declares a caliphate, uh, which headquarters was then in Raqqa, uh, which will soon be, uh, I, I think, will also be eventually taken back. But anybody who thinks that we're out of the woods if Mosul and Raqqa get retaken, they don't understand the, the phenomenon that we're dealing with here. If we don't deal with the root causes of this extremism, it's just going to come back in other forms. And besides that, you've got Boko Haram, you've got Al-Shabaab, you've got all sorts of varieties of this in, in many, many countries uh, throughout the world. So, um, I'm going to make three assumptions on how we deal with uh, violent Islamic extremism. I'm going to suggest first that Islam has as much or more to lose than we do. Uh, to see it defeated. Uh, and we've got to understand that because that's going to tell us that there are some allies there that we've got to figure out a way uh, to uh, have a stronger and closer relationship with. The Muslims are going to be key to this fight. Um, the best arguments uh, for religious freedom, for democracy, for treating minorities with respect are going to need to come from within the Islamic world. 
Um, secular arguments don't really work. I've, I've often made the case that, um, you know, whenever you see a, a bad religious phenomenon, uh, the best antidote to bad religion is good religion, you, or better religion. I'm not saying that Islam is, is it, most of us in here are Christians. I'm not saying that Christianity has the full revolution or anything revelation at all. But there are versions of it that are far less virulent and dangerous than what we see that's such a big threat right now. And we've got to find a way to encourage those who want to uh, attack this. Now, there have been some interesting developments the last few years. There was something called the common word that came up after um, Pope, Benedict did his famous Regensburg speech that caused all the controversy, but it actually ignited from within the Islamic uh, community among leaders a, a statement saying, we, why, we're quite willing to sit down and reason together. Reason's not something ISIS is known for being very interested in. You've got the open letter to Baghdadi that showed up on the internet, um, I think in 2014, but is signed by many Muslim leaders from all over the world. You've got the January 2016 Marrakesh Declaration, which calls for Muslim-majority nations to respect the rights of religious minorities. It doesn't address all questions, but that's a biggie. That's an important thing for them to address. And for those who say, well, it's just something on a piece of paper, you've got to explain why a few weeks later in Morocco they lifted the death penalty for apostasy. So. Not everything is going to hell in a, ha a handbasket. There are places where there's some, uh, some positive developments. I, was, I used to always use Indonesia as my positive example, but I've got to be honest with you, now we see some signs there that extremism is growing there. We're going to have to be very careful that what I was hoping would be influence from Indonesia back, the biggest Muslim country in the world, would be back in the Middle East. There seems to be a fair amount of evidence that there's been a lot of influence from the Middle East that direction. So that's going to need to be uh, addressed as well. And as Christians, let me make two observations about how I think we do our work uh, with the Muslim community. And um, the first is that I think we have to do it with, um, uh, with a certain level of humility. And this is what I mean. In 1994, during the Rwandan genocide, uh, Pope John Paul II, halfway through the genocide, issued a public statement in which he said there are Catholic leaders and priests who are involved in genocide in Rwanda. That was pretty recently. The next year, in the Balkans, you had 8,000 Muslim boys and men taken out and massacred and their wives and daughters raped by Christians. Now, there's a difference and what happened in both those cases? In neither one of those cases did those Catholics, and in some case Protestants and Orthodox, do what they did and claim Christian warrant to do it. They didn't quote from Scripture. They didn't say we have the right to do this. They were simply unfaithful Christians. So we can acknowledge that we have not always, in our history, even recently, um, been free from blood on our hands that we should have never had. Um, just acknowledging that little bit, that we, we sometimes have problems from within our own ranks of people being faithful to what we think they should be, helps. The second thing I would simply observe is, remember in 1968, in 1968, when Dignitatis Humanae uh, was published, which is the finest statement on religious freedom produced by any source, religious or secular, 
uh, that we've ever seen. That represented a development of doctrine of the Catholic and the Christian world. It didn't spring out of nowhere. There are scriptural roots there, there are patristic roots, there are the roots of Thomas Aquinas, there are roots of John Henry Newman. But they all led in a, a more positive direction as to how to treat the other, how to treat those who were not of our, of our thinking. Uh, it's critical to understand that even if we think Christianity is superior, which I happen to think it is, it doesn't mean that we haven't grown in our understanding and our faithfulness to Jesus Christ and what we believe are our theological roots. If that's true for us, it can certainly be true for others that they, can, they have the right to try to find within their own traditions of that which would move them away from extreme versions of, of their religions that cause tremendous difficulty. And I'll simply conclude uh, with this observation. I was reading um, in a devotion uh, a few months ago the first chapter of John, which is my favorite, I think it's my favorite chapter in, in the New Testament. I think it's one of the most beautiful theological treatises uh, that you'll find there. But I had never noticed that in the ninth verse, remember it's preceded by talking about Jesus Christ would be coming into the world, the light of the world. Light's always the image of Christian truth. And what was John? He was a witness to the light, right? But there's a third thing I had never noticed. Uh, verse 9 talks about the light was coming into the world, the same light that lights everybody who's come, who was coming into the world. There was this affirmation, scriptural, theological affirmation, that every person, whether they're an atheist or an agnostic or a Muslim or a Buddhist or a Hindu, if they're honest, there is something in them that can move in the direction of truth. That's what we've always believed. That's the natural law tradition. Um, and it gives us perfect right to interact with Muslims, assuming that those of them who are honest and want to do the right thing can move in the right direction. Now, how strong and deep the roots they can find in their own tradition and in history uh, to support Article 18 of the UN Declaration of Human Rights remains to be seen. But they insist there are things that they can find that will move them in that direction, and we've got to hope that they can have some success in that. Um, look, I'm going to stop here so that we have enough time to uh, have you sort of uh, raise questions about some things you might want to talk about. I apologize for going so fast. I don't know why I bring my notes up here. I never look at them. So. <laughs>